Welcome to episode number 63, Captivate. This is the Rotated Views Podcast with Jimmy Lee and the crew, giving you life from various perspectives. Welcome to our level. We hope you enjoy the views. All right, you are now tuned in to the Rotated Views Podcast. I am your host, Jimmy Lee Velez. I'm here with Manny, Gabe, and special guest, Vanessa Van Edwards. This title is Captivate. In this episode, we have special guest, Vanessa Van Edwards. In this episode, we talk about her book, Captivate, and how she uses science to succeed with people. We get into various topics, including body language, parenting, enthusiasm, and emotional intelligence. Vanessa shares with us hacks for taking charge of interactions at work, at home, and in any social situation. Lastly, we wrap up the episode with quotes from the author herself, Vanessa Van Edwards. So, if you are new, thank you for listening. We drop a new episode every Tuesday morning for your listening pleasure. Don't forget to download and subscribe. We like to kick things off with a definition from dictionary.com. And appropriately so, we define the term captivate. And dictionary.com defines it as to attract and hold the attention or interest of as by beauty or excellence enchant. Mm. So, since we have a uh, special guest, Vanessa Van Edwards, uh, with us today, um, I want to actually, I normally ask someone to give us a bio, but I'm going to give this bio myself and then I want her. Uh, you know, to kind of, you know, add to it. So Vanessa Van Edwards is a lead investigator at Science of People, a human behavior research lab. Her latest book, Captivate, was chosen as one of Apple's most anticipated books of 2017. She's fascinated by body language, leadership, and charisma, and writes about these topics for CNN, Fast Company, and Forbes. She also writes for a monthly column for Entrepreneur Magazine and the Huffington Post. Her innovative work has been featured on NPR, Business Week, and USA Today. More importantly, she's addicted to Sour Patch Kids, Airplane Coffee, and Puppies. <laughs> so, Vanessa, is there anything else our audience should know about you? I'm also a recovering awkward person. So if anyone ever had a tremendously, embarrassingly long, awkward stage, I am your person. We will, we will get along very well. <laughs> Um, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, so, and you are an author. So, so how did this all come, you know, come about, uh, from the science of people, uh, to, to captivate and everything else in between? Yeah, yeah. So I, I've always loved research and, and especially any kind of behavior psychology, neuroeconomics, you know, all those all those amazing ideas. But the problem is, is I would read all the latest research from academic institutions or organizations, and they were these these beasts of academic studies, right? They were, you know, twenty page papers with academic jargon, and you could barely understand the abstract, let alone you know all the statistical methods in the in the article. And I wondered, was there a better way? Was there a way to to take the science that's being done out there and kind of turn it into applicable nuggets and maybe test it in the real world? Because the other problem is, you know, with academic universities, their studies are really small sample sizes. You know, usually it's like 26 college seniors. And so we know a lot about psychology majors in Ivy League colleges around the world, right? Like we, we know a lot about that demographic. Yeah. Um, but not so much um, in the big data world. So what we do is we try to test some of the academic research with big data. So I'll read a great study out of Tufts University or Harvard Business School and then see if I can turn it into an original research experiment with big data, with broad sampling of people to see if we can expand upon the research at all. And that's that, that need or that desire is what sort of spawned our lab to start doing all this unique research. That's so fascinating. So, so you're going from, you know, the traditional study of exactly how you said as universities, they gathered just about, you know, what's funny. I was, I went to, uh, me and my cousin Manny here went to Temple University in Philadelphia Yeah, and I was totally one of those subjects. I remember I did it just for the money. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh sweet, 50 bucks. I was a broke college student. Um, did you do any weird any weird studies? Because I remember the psychology studies I did. Do you, did you do any weird ones? <laughs> oh my gosh, I was. I remember them. I, okay, so they walked me in a room 
uh, one study was they walked me in a room, they sat me in a chair, then blindfolded me, and then asked they asked me to you know what I was smelling as <laughs> oh. as I was as as they're like rapid fire asking me questions. So they wanted no. me to, they wanted me to be aware of what I guess using two senses at once. I'm not sure. I don't even know what the result of the study was. I was just I was happy to get my fifty bucks. Um, was but, was the smell good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like. I, I got scared as soon as they say, tell me what you smell. I'm like, uh. <laughs> I didn't mean to be nervous. Yeah. No, it was, um, <clears throat> the first one was like a floral scent. I, I didn't really, I don't think I nailed what flower it was, but it was a floral scent. Um, I remember there being like a food, which I thought was like French fry. It smelled like a French fry to me. Mm. Um, and then the third one, um, it was like a cotton smell. So I'm assuming it was like a freshly washed t-shirt or maybe like a fabric softener sheet, something like that. Um. And I was answering questions and I was blindfolded in a dark room. It was a very bizarre, I don't even know what they're trying to find, um, you know, what level of study this was. Uh, but I just remember just getting paid and being very happy. No, that's so, awesome. There, it's interesting. I wonder, there's so many interesting studies on smell. One of them, one of my favorites, and I don't think it was the one that you were doing, but it might be close. It was, this is one of my favorite studies on smell. It's so what they did is they blindfolded participants, most likely college freshmen or seniors. That <laughs> yeah. they paid fifty bucks, which, by the way, my friend, fifty bucks, you made a killing. Like that's yeah. that's pretty good pay. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I only made twenty bucks when I did my when I did my studies. Um, so they, they they take you in a lab, they blindfold you, they put you in a dark room, um, and they ask you to smell and taste different kinds of yogurt, hmm. and they ask you if you like the flavor and scent of that yogurt. Now the trick about this is they ask you in a way that's very uh, leading with the smell. So they give you a yogurt and they say, please rate the strawberriness of this strawberry flavored yogurt. And you give it a rating from one to five. And then they do the same thing with chocolate yogurt and vanilla yogurt. The thing is, is it's actually all chocolate yogurt. No so, way. Yeah. So you're your brain, if it thinks it's about to smell strawberry yogurt, will actually smell strawberry yogurt. And people rate the strawberry yogurt as a very strawberry flavor. Um, and that's like, it shows the power of priming, which is this really powerful psychological concept that um, we actually create the environment that we think is going to happen as opposed to actually experiencing the environment as it is. Huh. So that that's why presentation of food is so important. That's why presentation of your brand is so important because if you think it's going to taste good it's very likely that it will but if you think it's going to taste bad it's very likely that it won't that is fascinating uh. beyond you know because we always talk about you know first impressions i know this it's kind of the same thing where you know the way you present yourself yeah, she's saying the way we you know we lay out food mm -hmm. uh the presentation but i remember seeing a study i don't know what in the world i was watching i was probably I couldn't sleep and just turned on the tv and it was kind of something, you know, to that level where they were in France and they're doing a study. Apparently, this restaurant sell, was selling like the number one water in the world at the time. I don't know how far, how long ago this was. And these people raved about how good the water tasted, right? <laughs> so I they, think I know where this is going. <laughs> yeah. So they, you know, these guys thought it was, they'd get a kick out of it. They're doing a study as well and they would go, um, it might have been like Mythbusters. Or, it was mm. something like like to that level. And they're really, they're doing a true investigation, you know, and a study. So they went to this restaurant and uh, they filled the bottles of water with hose water. Oh. And they served it to the, you know, to, you know, the, the people who are eating there. And then they interviewed, you know, them. So, so, you know, we're doing a study on the water. We just wanted to see, you know, what is it about this water? What did you think about it? And how did it taste? And, you know, the response like, oh, it's glorious. This is the best oh, water I've ever no. tasted. Um, <laughs> you know, this is like God sent this the, to that level of enthusiasm. I mean, it, it blew their socks off and it was just hose water. See, I, I actually really like these studies because for so for a lot of the, the my students, they're entrepreneurs, they're business people. And I tell them, you're not trying to sell, you know, hose water to to people who are expecting glacier water you're selling something that you think is really amazing if you package it as it's as as amazing as it is and you tell people how good it is and you learn how to sell yourself you're actually setting people up to enjoy it as much as they should so i think that there's like a level of authenticity there that yes of course all these things can be used for evil but i think there's yeah. also <laughs> them for good in that 
you know, you are a great person, right? If you show up, if you show up on a date and you want to present yourself well, that's because you are a great person. You are a great catch. And so it's not inauthentic to show up as your best version of yourself. It's just saying, I really take care in who I am. And I really feel like I'm giving you something that will be worth your time. Yeah, that's, um, that is huge too, especially in sales. Uh, we always say this about my uncle Ed. My uncle Ed, we call him the, you know, the hustler. And he, I don't know if you know the term, what someone's being a little extra. My uncle is extra in everything uh-huh. he does. So talking about priming people, if this guy is, you know, invites you over to, you know, for, you know, maybe a burger or a steak on his grill and he's like, oh, let's have lunch, come over. Okay. Well, in while he's cooking the steak, he's telling you about the steak. Mm-hmm. So yes. where he, where he bought yeah. it, why it's the best steak, mm-hmm. why what his preparation, and you know it's been marinating all day. Uh, just every level yeah. of, and he's talking, he's going through the stages of the prep that mm-hmm. he did for this to the you know to amount of flips that the each steak gets and why that to the pot, by the time you're eating it, I was like salivating. I could not wait to <laughs> eat this steak. And in all honesty, it was a good steak. But like he sold me on it before I even you know you know right. I even digested it, yeah. uh, which is fat. He does it with everything though, so you I, it's always a fun time at Uncle Ed's because he just he's so involved into everything he does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so I like being. I mean, there's a concept that I that I teach called um, being an adder, not a subtractor, which is sort of this you know kind of builds on your idea of like. You know, giving a little, you said extra, right? That, yeah. that was the, yeah. Like, I think that that's kind of being an adder because what you're doing is you're not just giving someone a steak, you're actually giving them the experience of the steak. Yeah. Yes. Now, when you think about happiness, and like I did a, a whole set of research experiments on the science of happiness because it was, it's a topic that I think is an aspect of human behavior that um, we don't think about in terms of interactions or relationships. But happiness doesn't just come from being on a vacation, right? We think about taking a vacation to Hawaii and it's it's five days out of the year and you think that happiness is just on those five days. But actually, the experience of Hawaii before and after is where the real happiness comes in. It's it's buying your ticket. It's saving up for the trip. It's telling everyone that you're going there. It's getting your clothes laid out. It's thinking about how you're going to pack. Like every time that you think about Hawaii, it gives you a dose of happiness if you choose to look at it that way. Mm. So if you think about eating a steak, which is, you know, a, 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 a could take whatever ten minutes if you're if you're eating a small steak, maybe twenty minutes if you're eating a big steak. Right. Um, it doesn't have to be ten to twenty minutes of happiness. It could be two hours of happiness because if you prep that steak and you are lovingly seasoning it, and you're you ask the butcher, "Hey, where did this steak come from?" Oh, it's grass-fed bison from the <laughs> hills of Idaho. Great, and you take it home and you and you lovingly trim it, and then you you know you add your favorite seasoning that you got from your grandmother's cabinet, and like you talk to your friends about it. Like that's two hours of happiness instead of just ten or twenty minutes. And I think that that's a very, very different way to go about enjoying those small moments. So that, that, that is fascinating. You know, when you say that you can extend the level of happiness, now that I think about it, Uncle White is always smiling. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, you know, how people can apply that to the most mundane things. Because in my mind, he even does it for like car repairs. Mm. You know, I come over, I'm like, oh man, Uncle White, I got a light that just went off the truck. He goes, oh, let's see yeah. what it is. And he looks at it and he's like, oh, yo, let's, let's get in the car. Let's get in the car. We, I, I know exactly what this is. I know exactly what this is. We'll go to AutoZone. You know, you have to go to AutoZone. You don't know why you go to AutoZone? The other places, you know, they might rip you off because they cut out the AutoZone, cuts out the middleman, and they're, they're getting their prices for cheap. This dude went in a whole explanation as to why we should go to AutoZone. like, all right, let's go. You know what I mean? And we're talking about fixing, you know, maybe like a light bulb or something in the truck. Uh it's with everything. So he definitely has that approach where he stretches out. I mean, is there anything, because we always say he's yeah. extra, is there anything to, you know, in your research that you find with someone's level of enthusiasm towards things? Yeah. So there's a couple things that I just thought of there. So the first thing is um, the idea of adding ritual where there is no ritual. So um, for people listening, um, think about some of the small moments in your life that um, you either do daily or weekly that could be extended. They could be savored. Like for example, almost every morning I make myself tea. Now this was not much of a ritual before. I would sort of, you know, grab a tea bag and throw it in the mug and hit my little kettle and just sit there quietly while it boils. Right. Like that was like, that was sort of the experience. Right. 
I was like, why does it have to be this way? So I, I, I decided to like get some like beautiful different bags of tea. I even bagged some of my own tea. I went to a little tea shop and I got a bunch of different flavors. I got one of these beautiful glass like steeping machines. It's like more than a machine. It's like a contraption yeah. you know, that supposedly makes the best tea ever. Yeah. Nice. You know, I got like, gorgeous ceramic mugs that my friends painted for me. And so now like in the morning, instead of doing it passively, I actually look forward to going to, I call it my tea bar. Nice. <laughs> I, like, I go to my tea bar and like, it's no extra space. It was like a, a birthday gift for the, for the glass contraption. But I would think about what are there, what are things in your life? Is it making your cup of coffee? Can you make it like, get some nice syrups for your latte or, you know, up, upgrade your mugs or, you know, what are the different rituals that you can add? Cause that really helps create happy moments or peak moments where it would have been a, a totally brainless autopilot neutral moment. So that's, that's the first thing. And the second thing is there is definitely research about enthusiasm. So enthusiasm is an interesting one because, um, it is a facet of personality. When you talk about personality there, there is, um, extroversion um, enthusiasm can be a facet of extroversion. So I'm guessing that your uncle is quite extroverted. Is that oh, right? Yeah. Understatement. <laughs> Understatement. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they, they typically go hand in hand. Not always. I do know some enthusiastic introverts, um, but you usually call an introvert passionate as opposed to, or dedicated as mm. opposed to enthusiastic because mm. they are less verbal um, and less um, sherry. And sherry is not an adjective, I, I know. But like, <laughs> right. you know, they... <laughs> Like they get very um, excited about it for themselves. They're not necessarily going to go walk around a party with it. Um, so uh, that's it's an interesting one because it's actually somewhat genetic. About thirty to fifty-five percent of our personality is genetic, so um, it, it's usually coded. But the other aspect of enthusiasm from a social interaction standpoint is called capitalization. So capitalization is when someone comes to you enthusiastic about something. It could be a steak or AutoZone or <laughs> their bar or whatever it is. And they are coming to you with a bid. They want you to take their enthusiasm and either be curious about it, so ask questions, or match it, so get as enthusiastic about it as them. The worst thing that could happen for an enthusiastic, uh, enthusiastic person is for them to come to you with enthusiasm and be, have it be met with a dream killer. Mm. So a dream killer... And this is, I think, a, a big thing for parents with children. Children show a lot of enthusiasm before their personality is even fully developed. Even introverted children can be enthusiastic about certain things. And usually the first person they want to share it with is their parents. Mm. And so because parents have seen everything a million times before and we know it all, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it can be very tiresome to show that kind of enthusiasm back or to show any kind of curiosity. And so what we have to keep in mind is the greatest gift can give enthusiasm um, is a match or curiosity of that enthusiasm. The worst thing we can do is meet it with neutrality. Neutrality is like a wet blanket for 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 passion or enthusiasm, um, or start to dream kill it. For ex I will t I'll give you a very specific example. So one of the things that I'm very enthusiastic about is s'mores. <laughs> I love. <laughs> I am I am a cultivator of s'mores. I try different versions of s'mores. I have like, whenever I have a party, I have an, like an outdoor deck and we do s'mores. I have like a s'more buffet. Like we do like lots of different kinds of s'mores. Okay. Nice. So um, I'm like very into it. And like everyone who knows me knows I'm into it. So the other day I was having a, a barbecue and people were coming over and I was like, and the s'more bar is open. <laughs> and like I throw open the doors to the patio and, you know, I, a, a rush of people go through. And, and also I get great joy out of seeing how people cook their s'mores. Like I have a whole theory of personality about like how people cook their s'mores and like do they burn their marshmallow and like it's a whole thing yeah. it's very fun it, it's yes. a very fun thing so I had a, a woman who was at the party and she walks over and she's eyeing the s'more bar but not touching anything which is never <laughs> a good sign because I mean if you see chocolate and marshmallows the first thing you want to do is touch and eat yeah and she's kind of looking and, and she turns to me and she goes what kind of marshmallows are these what? and I was like and I was like um so this is moderately curious. Okay, well, I'll, I'll take curiosity. Okay, so I said, um, you know, they're the marshmallows that like everyone buys at the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> very specific. You know very like, specific. I'm like, I'm like, I'm. I was like, they're not fancy marshmallows if that if that's what you mean. <laughs> and she goes, Oh, do you know that those marshmallows are made with a horrible kind of animal gelatin that is really terrible for? And she like went on oh. about how terrible this um animal product was now buzzkill 
but, but yes, total <laughs> yeah, exactly. total, and and it like, and I and I felt embarrassed. Right. I actually felt I felt really really embarrassed because here was a guest in my home who was vegan, and I would have I really wanted to respect her way of eating. Like I was, I was horrified that as a host, I had not not only provided something that was going to give her a heart attack at a young age, right. according to her, oh, but God. also respect her dietary restrictions, which as a host, you know, you should try to do. True. So I was, I was so embarrassed and so sad, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it immediately. And now, now when I have barbecues, I'm like, oh my God, like, do I have to get vegan marshmallows for people? <laughs> so like it was, it was this whole thing. And I think that there, there was another way that she could have approached that, right? Like <clears throat> I'm totally down for asking questions. I'm totally down for educating people about this product because clearly this this is a not a good thing that they put in marshmallows. But there was probably a better way to do it that would have wouldn't have been such a buzzkill. And that's I think the difference between capitalizing or adding and subtracting. So so what what reaction wouldn't have made you feel like the wet blanket? What what would what would made you feel like okay and still enthusiastic and upbeat about the marshmallow bar or the s'more bar after totally. you know. What, what comment would, would have been what you were looking for? So what would have been amazing is if she could have, A, started with something that she that was good. So maybe she loves chocolate. Maybe she loves graham crackers. Maybe she loves dessert. So that would have been nice. But she could have also just said, oh, my gosh, look at this. I've never seen such a spread before. I, you know, you have a couple different kinds of candy here. So I have a lot of different kinds of chocolate. Like I'll have like mini Snickers bars and mini um, like and Reese's Pieces instead of chocolate, like to add to your s'mores because there's nice. something better than different chocolates. So she, she could have said, wow, like look at all these different kinds of chocolates. Have you ever seen they have these really interesting different kinds of marshmallows? I've even seen this company in Portland and they're vegan too. And they have raspberry marshmallows. They have lime marshmallows. They're amazing. I, I bet you that would be like a, a, a crazy ad. Like I, I would love to bring over some next time I come over. Yeah. Then we could have had I first of all, I hadn't. I would have had no idea. I would have been like, "What? There's right. raspberry marshmallows? <laughs> My like, right? Like, it would have blown my mind, and I would have gotten excited and enthusiastic about buying vegan marshmallows for next time. Like, I think that that's that would have been a very easy way of going about it. And I and she actually would have educated me on something because then she could have said, you know, most people don't even realize that marshmallows aren't vegan. And I would have been like, they're not vegan. Like, what animal products in them? And she'd have been like, oh my gosh, I couldn't believe it when I first started to look into being vegan. I thought marshmallows would be no problem. And I looked at the back, and there's this weird. She could have educated me on it in that way. would have actually, I think, made it for fascinating party conversation in a certain sense. Speaking of um, great, that, that's a you know great answer. Um, but I, when as you're as you're giving that response, it reminded me. Um, as you know, we're all here, dads, and how many times do our kids come up to us? As you mentioned earlier, very excited about something, and since we quote know it all and seen it a million times, kind of shoot it down. And instead of being as, you know, matching their enthusiasm, um, I'm a very high energy person. So a lot of times I am matching his enthusiasm. My son James just came home uh, from school and he just did it again. He, yesterday we're in the pool all day and, you know, it's it's later. It's not time for that. You know, mm-hmm. he just comes home. He's like, oh, dad. He looks outside and sees the pool. Oh, dad, can we go in the pool? And I'm staring at him like, no, we can't go in a pool. It's going to be 8 o'clock at night. <laughs> totally just shot it down. He's staring. He's like, but I like the pool. You know, like giving me like that little smart response back. But how many times as, you know, parents, really, um, not just dads, but uh, we don't match the enthusiasm or that level of excitement, um, you know, a- a- as our children. Is, is there any tips maybe? Because sometimes it's hard because they're, yeah. they're, they're a lo- it's a lot of energy to handle. Sure. And yes, five minutes ago, I matched his energy. Ten minutes ago, I was excited as he was. By the 20th thing he brought up that he's excited about, he's I'm not down. excited. He's yeah. down. Yeah. I'm done with the excitement. I just naturally, <laughs> I'm just exhausted. So how do, yeah. we, how do you maintain that? I also think that it's really important to not be inauthentic with enthusiasm with your kids because that's a form of lying, right? Like, (laughs) you know, like you don't want to be like pretend excited. Like anyone can tell the difference between a fake, fake enthusiasm or like um, mocking enthusiasm. And I think so that that's the first thing is it's much easier to find energy for things that you're actually excited about (laughs) um, because you're actually excited about them. And also that, that slowly teaches your kids what interests you. Like for example, 
I don't have kids yet, but I just have a feeling that my um, husband is going to be the one to drones and airplanes and um, all those kinds of good things. We already have five drones in our house and there are no nice. kids in the house. Nice. Um, <laughs> where I might be more excited about like gardening and uh, painting and drawing and music um, right. and those kind of things. I don't want to fake pretend. It's a lot more energy for me to fake pretending about his new car that he's working on or like, a, you know, uh, or a, a drone that he's like playing with. That would take a lot more energy for me to be excited about that. Whereas if I say, whoa, like, that's pretty cool. That reminds me of your dad. Did you show him? Right. Like that's a different yeah. level of enthusiasm versus things that actually make me excited. So that's the first thing I think that um, it takes a lot of energy to stick to things that you're actually excited about. The second thing is enthusiasm doesn't have to match their energy level. So it takes a lot of energy, obviously, to be as excited for a kid. When a kid's excited about something, they, they're excited with their entire body, right? right like, yeah. They're like jumping up and down and like, I, I, oh my gosh, I love watching kids get excited about things. I just got back from Disney World and my favorite part of Disney World was watching the kids enjoy Disney World. Like that was like a hundred, I, I wasn't even there with kids, but like watching yeah. other kids experience things was like the best part. Yeah. Um, and so I think that you as an adult don't necessarily also have to jump up and down and um, you know scream with delight. You can also match that enthusiasm with curiosity. Mm -hmm. Curiosity and questions are a much lower energy form of still sharing enthusiasm. So asking questions is a way of also capitalizing on, on that enthusiasm. I love that because you're also, you know, you're showing still, you're still showing interest into, right. you know, what you're not shooting them down. Um, that's fascinating. And I want to also go back to what you were saying earlier about inheritance. Um, I'm just like looking at my kid and we always, my wife always says, uh, oh, he's, he's a total, about my son. Oh, he's a total Velez. Me, me and my brothers and my dad all have, we're very high energy. Um, we like to joke around, um, boys, boys jumping off of things, you know, whatever. Um, so I'm wondering, he, he seems to be, but he also has like her tendencies when he, you know, when, when things happen and how we react back to what he's asking us, so to speak. So if he's super excited, I'm, I love being excited with him cause that's like a natural thing for me. My wife's like a way more toned down, actually maybe the opposite, just kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, that's cool. And just holding in her excitement or just not, you know, as, um, as you say, Sherry, as I am. <laughs> or visibly um, excited. Or visibly excited. Yeah. So maybe inside, obviously, she's excited, but she's just not like the way I am. I'm like, oh, buddy, grab your bags. Let's go. Let's do it. Um, so, so how do, do you know, do you guys know by any of these studies how that even works out? Obviously, uh, it's inherited, but is there a way that people can manipulate it? Let's say if my mom was constantly, you know, as a pessimist. And I got that and I inherited being a pessimist and I didn't want to be a pessimist anymore. Is there ways people can manipulate their feelings to change for the better or what they would uh, uh, assume as better? Yeah. So um, when we look at the science of personality, we're basically looking at five main personality traits. And this is the most... Um, reliable form of personality science. It's much more reliable than Myers-Briggs or DISC or Enneagram. Those have not really been backed up by academic research. The only academically viable set that's used across cultures, so universal personality science, is called the Big Five. So it's openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and eroticism. And so this is a, a huge chunk of the kind of middle part of my book because what it is is trying to figure out where someone naturally falls and then exactly what you just said, dialing up or down. So just, be just because you might have inherited either being high or low in a trait, so you either are high, medium, or low in a trait, it doesn't mean that you can't... Um, change it. And this is called free trait theory. So free trait theory basically says that you can change, dial up or dial down your personality traits, your personality orientation based on your goals. So like a famous example would be Jackie Kennedy. So Jackie Kennedy was uh, famously known as an introvert, but she had goals as first lady, goals to um, change things and, and bring style and grace to the White House. And so she dialed up her introvertness to become a little more extroverted and do TV appearances and public speaking and be a little bit on the campaign trail. That was, I don't, according to her, her biographies, that was not natural to her, but she dialed it up. 
that's a very famous example of a way to do it. Another one would be uh, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs uh, was famously low on the agreeableness scale. So agreeableness is how you work with others. It's how cooperative you are, um, whether you default to yes or no. So people who are high in agreeableness default to yes. People who are low in agreeableness default to no. So he was famously low. <laughs> he typically defaulted to no. He did not love working on teams. However, he dreamt very big. He knew that he could not build Apple without being on a team, without working with people, without getting help. So he had to dial up his agreeableness and find ways to work with people on a team to be able to get his ideas and goals through at Apple. So yes, 100% you can dial up or dial down. Can you flip your personality traits? Not really. Can you change them long term? Very hard, but you can dial up or dial down. Fascinating. Um, can, like, I'd like to ask a question. When you talk about um, Ocean, the, this matrix, and in the book you, you talk about step one is, is figuring yourself out first. Is that the most important step? You can't go to step you know, two without you know, mastering step one. Is that true? I, I would say it's not essential, but I prefer it. So you don't have to figure yourself out first, especially if you are stumped on yourself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I've had yeah. people tell me who are not quite as self-aware or have had a very complicated personal history. I've had them say, you know, I actually had to solve everyone in my life first who then taught me about myself. So you don't have to. It just helps when you start with yourself to be able to see people in relation to you. But I think getting a grasp of the personality traits, like one of the things um, that I do in the book and I do it when I teach, is to think of the quintessential examples in each of the personality traits. So thinking of the quintessential examples is other people. So for example, like the quintessential example of low agreeable is probably Steve Jobs, maybe Elon Musk. Uh, the the quintessential example of um, of uh, extrovert might be actually that's a good one for you guys. What do you think is the quintal? Who's the person, the celebrity you can think of, who's just the most extroverted person you can think of? Kim Kardashian. Okay, great, love it. Okay, so Kim Kardashian would be a great one. Kanye so West. What- <laughs> <laughs> that couple. Yeah, yeah. Like, what are they, what are they called? Kim Ye. Yeah, Kim Ye. Yep. Uh, why do I know that? Why do I know? That? <laughs> <laughs> um, so. I I do think in a certain sense that can also be helpful. So thinking about quintessential other people in your life might even be a backdoor into solving yourself. Wow. Um, Now, even tailing back, uh, I hate to go back, but it just fascinated me when you're talking about, um, you know, inheritance, which made me also think of, you know, we talk about IQ and EQ, the difference and the importance of both. Um, We're talking about, are we all born with, you know, just like an IQ, a set of, you know, emotional intelligence um, that we can then build on? And is there any correlation between the emotional intelligence and intuition? So you can be born with high PQ or interpersonal intelligence, but you do not have to be. So it's kind of like, um, if you think about PQ, like athleticism, so I don't like to compare PQ to IQ because actually it's very different. You know, IQ, you can kind of be born with it. It's hard to raise your IQ levels. Um, but I like to think of it as athletes. So for example, um, if you are born with a certain kind of build that is going to, um, make you better set up for success in certain sports. So if you are of light, a, a man of light build, um, who's, uh, has a, a small posture, small stature, you might be ideal as a jockey, nimble, fast, lightweight, right? Right. Uh, you would be great as a horse jockey. Maybe you're born, uh, and you are already off the charts height wise. <laughs> you're above six foot five. Uh, you're a fast runner. You'd be great as a basketball player, right? So yep. that sets you up for success. However, that does not mean that if you are of average height, you cannot be a jockey or you cannot be a basketball player. Could it affect the position that you play? Probably. Would it affect the amount of hours you have to put in the gym? Yes, definitely. So like me, for example, I was born with very little interpersonal intelligence. <laughs> and so I had to spend extra hours in the gym, if you will, which I call my lab, studying how people work. I do not find conversations natural. So I had to study them. I had to hack them. That's why we have, you know, human behavior hacks in the book. I believe that you have to learn the programming language of humans to be able to solve them. Because for me, I just was not born with that natural ability. 
So I think that if that answers the question, yes, there are those naturally charismatic people. People say that Bill Clinton was one of those people. I think he was probably born charming people, you know, out of the womb. And then there are others who had to learn it. But both are fair and viable and um, interesting. So um, I know I'm a dad, right? And I always find it interesting that my son can pick up, you know, certain things without anything being said so Mm -hmm. if he's sitting on my lap and we're watching you know the game or whatever and um he'll just like look up at me i didn't say a word um and he's like i love you dad or whatever and then he's like you okay dad and this kid's he's three so then Uh and then i remember one time um he was walking from the entrance of our house into the kitchen i was sitting down uh finishing up dinner and I was just admiring who, who he was. I was just staring at him. I was like, oh my gosh, look how beautiful this child is. And I was walking up, and he's walking up towards me, and I'm smiling. He's smiling. And I want, I said, I love you so much in my head. And I touched his, you know, like the back of his head, like to give him a kiss. And he's like, I love you too, dad. Aww. So I'm like, but I didn't even say anything. So that's why I, I was always interested in like the intuitiveness of children are they more in tune with uh, like emotions like that than we are? Or is it just something, I don't know, maybe it was just a random thing my kid did. Or he's just telepathic. Or he's, he, well, yeah. <laughs> he could be psychic. Um, right. I, so I have not seen any definitive research saying that children are more, are more intuitive than adults. However, there is quite a bit of research about how children are more emotive than adults. So I think that, this, I think that the study is that children um, on a, Day, in the average day, show an average of over, I think I want to say it's 200 body language gestures in the average day. By the time they reach high school, it's it's down to under 30 or something like that. Wow, wow. Um, and I don't know if I have those numbers right there from my memory, but it's it's extreme. Basically saying that kids are much more expressive. Now, usually, usually expressiveness or being emotive goes hand in hand with picking up on on emotions and reading expressiveness. But through school or through being an adult or through behaving, they are taught or learned to hone them down uh, and or um, focus more on the verbal, that their your verbal is more important. For example, you know, parents will often stick to the same three nonverbal lessons. They typically are make eye contact, look at, look at me when you're speaking, right? Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. one yeah. of them. Yeah. The second one is stand up straight, sit up straight. So posture. And the third one is usually has to do with hands. So it's either shake his hand. You know, we always give a handshake or put your hands underneath the table. Don't put your elbows on the table. Usually that's one of the three things. Those are th- only three of hundreds of body language laws and ways of expressing. But kids are taught hundreds, if not thousands, of verbal ways to express. So the lessons from parents on verbal expressiveness are tremendous. I mean, it's everything from say please and thank you to how do you talk to an adult to here's how to write an essay when you get into high school to here's how to form a sentence to here's the proper past tense, here's the proper future tense to here's how you say mom, maybe here's how you say, right? Like the verbal lessons are pages and books and books and books, whereas the nonverbal lessons stop. It's really, it's really three. And so one of the goals that I have at my lab is um, the pro bono side of my business. So that what pays the bills are our book sales and corporate trainings and, and our online courses. But the pro bono side, the nonprofit side is I teach this in schools. So there are very, very few classes on nonverbal intelligence for kids. But actually, they are they are fascinated by it, and they are much faster learners than adults. I will tell you, mm. I've even done nonverbal intelligence workshops for kindergartners, and they are faster learners than my MBAs by far. Wow! So I think that that's what we're talking about here. Is it's actually it's just it's an inborn skill that we have how to express, how to emote, and how to read those emotions, but we lose it because it's just not emphasized by our parents or by schools. How, how much do you think is, and, and I'm thinking about it now, my kids, you know, I felt like my son at that same age would ask those questions, would ask me those questions, and I didn't want him to know that either I was upset or um, how I was feeling. If I was down, if I was happy, obviously, it was I was, you know, open about it, but I feel like sometimes I would just kind of squash his inquisition by, 
being kind of that wet blanket. So I, I don't know after time, are they just like kind of built to just be like, eh, that emotion, I'm not going to ask. I know what that is. I'm just not even going to be open about it. You know, just kind of tune me out type thing. Yeah. I mean, children, all adults, all people are constantly searching for good chemicals. And what I mean by that is we produce chemicals in, in interactions. So if we have a really um, loving, warm interaction, we produce oxytocin, which makes us feel belonging. So when we, when we sit and we cuddle with our kids on the couch or you know, we have a really good, um, a great conversation with lots of eye contact, we're explaining something to our kids, that produces oxytocin. Um, if we have a really stressful interaction with our kids or a neutral interaction, that might produce cortisol or adrenaline, which is the stress hormone. Um, kids who have experienced trauma or been bullied, they have a lot of cortisol in their little bodies, um, which is, is a very stressful thing. So we, our goal is to avoid the negative and seek out the positive. So if a, a child approaches a parent looking for either oxytocin, belonging, or serotonin, which is calming, so like soothe me, calm me down. Um, or dopamine, which is pleasure, excitement, uh, reward me, um, and they don't get it. They either get something neutral or they get cortisol, like, ugh, don't bother me right now, you know, either one. Right. They are taught from a chemical perspective to not try that again <laughs> because either they're not going to get the chemical they want or they're going to get a bad chemical. Huh. Makes sense. Yeah, it does. So, so moving from, you know, the, you know, being a child, obviously having children and dealing with, um, certain situations, um, my brother, um, is a single, is a single father. Is there, is there anything that you can speak on when it comes to the atmosphere children are raised when it's that, you know, when it's that separated? Um, so the way my brother operates and the way he kind of manages his life is totally different um, than the, the child's atmosphere when she's at home with her mother and her stepfather. Um, is there, you know, and, and my brother obviously sees her on the weekends and, you know, in, in the middle of the week. So when, when we're trying to build um, our children and not interfere with their growth, is there a tip you can have for him? I know he's not here, but I just found that, you know, curious um, that is there something that can be, you know, like in an instant, you know, like a hack or something that, you know, that familiarity can be, or the comfort and soothing things over because it's the situation. It is what it is kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I haven't seen any research on, again, I don't know. I'm not as familiar with the parenting, um, research that's out there. I haven't seen any research on, you know, single, single family homes, um, or, uh, children who switch switch homes. However, I do think it's important to understand how our memories work. Um, so when we're thinking about how we recollect experiences. So if you think back to your childhood, and I say to you, what were you doing at the age of six and three quarters? Wow. <laughs> it, it would be um, very hard for you to remember that. Although at six and three quarters, you knew you were six and three quarters, right? You, right. you said I'm six and you held up your three quarters, right? Like that was, that was a big, that was a big deal. True. Um, what we remember most, and this is the same thing in all kinds of social interactions, is typically the high or the low. Mm. And it is or. It is an or. Mm. So um, in a social interaction, and I, I, I talk about this, I was just on a, a wedding podcast recently, and I said, if you want to have a really memorable wedding, you should actually create, um, you should look at the psychology of your wedding by creating um, highs, because those are going to be more likely to be remembered. You want to make them beat any of the lows, like long bathroom lines or running out of food, or if it was really hot, you want to beat those. It's kind of the same thing with parenting in the sense of um, if you have limited time with your child because they're switching houses. And by the way, this was me growing up. My mm. parents got divorced when I was three years old and I switched homes every Monday. So wow. Um, wow. yeah, until I was 18 years old and it was, it was miserable. Uh, it was really hard. However, I had limited time with my siblings in each home and I had limited time with my parents the, one, the moments I remember are the highs or the lows. I don't remember anything in between. So if your brother can create more highs at his house, and this doesn't necessarily mean like, we're going to Disneyland every week. Right, right. <laughs> um, but it, it does mean having these very small, very memorable moments. Um, this can be having a really deep, enthusiastic conversation um, or like having um, a theme every Saturday. I know this sounds kind of crazy, but I would have um, dad dates with my dad mm. where 
he, I, you know, I didn't get these very often, but I, I probably remember almost all of them, um, from age four through 12, um, where he would say to me, okay, like next daddy daughter date, we're going to play checkers. I'm going to teach you how to play checkers and we're going to get special chocolate from Moonstruck chocolate. And we're going to learn how to play checkers with chocolate. I remember that so well. And it was like, it was such a small thing, but we talked about it for weeks and we would talk about the dates for weeks in advance. So thinking about how can you make those Saturdays or those, you know, times that he has with his children really memorable so that your child has something to look forward to, especially if they're having lows in their other home, they can at least have something to look forward to that's coming as a high to look forward to. So extending the happiness as well as a memory to look back on. That is excellent advice. I love that. And I, I, I almost feel that on some level, just because of social media, we get to share um, our life and our lifestyles. And it is fascinating that you said that because I do find my brother actually doing those little things. Uh, like two weekends ago, they went, you know, like a kayaking or whatever. And then the following weekend, he's like, oh, and he, they went to the movies and they watched a specific movie that she wanted to watch. Um, and he is talking to me. Uh, my brother's a barber. Um, so he cuts everyone here's hair. So while we're sitting in the barber chair, you know, you go over, um, you know, what's going on in life. And he's, he's almost priming me mm. for what he's going to do with, you know, the, the fun that he's going to have with his daughter. So then it keeps me excited for the next time, you know, I talked to him, I was like, oh, did you and Ava go to, uh, did you guys go kayaking? Yeah. Did you guys go fishing? Or whatever you guys were doing. Um, that is fascinating. Yeah, and, and I think surprises can be good. Right. But actually, the the buildup is even better, you know, and, and, and I don't know if, if his children are old enough to have cell phones, but, you know, texting and saying four more days until checkers, you know, nice. I just bought the I just bought this the, the board for us. Here's a picture. Get excited. You know, like those th- that's a way of sharing enthusiasm, even when they're your child's not with you. It's a way of creating uh, a sense of um, connection and oxytocin and dopamine even when they're not with you. That's fascinating. I, I have a question, and, and it's from the book, and, and um, you talk about uh, with your dad in, in this particular experience of, of um, you would spend all this time trying to get him the best present. I don't remember if it was for a birthday, Father's Day, or, or what <laughs> yes. have you. Uh, yes. But you talk about you know how one time, uh, one, one year you got sick, um, and you ended up just spending the day with him, literally eating, what, just eating chicken wings and watching football. And he yeah. had the greatest time ever in the book. If you want to kind of elaborate on that story, I thought it was a great story because here you are trying to go above and beyond, and all he wanted you just sit down, watch some football, and just converse with him. It was great. <laughs> I, I, so it's so funny that that's one of my favorite stories. And my dad and I argued about it, by the way, um, which was really funny. Like I, I sent him a copy of the book, and that 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 story is, I think, in chapter eight. <laughs> and I was a little bit nervous for him to read it because. You know, I basically say that he hated all of my gifts growing up. Until that's, I got- I'm not going to lie. That's what it sounded like yeah. a little bit. <laughs> and, he like, and he called me and he's like, I just read my story. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I did like some of your gifts. I was like, yeah, some of my gifts. Like, like, like two of them when like you picked them out with me. You know, like that, that right. was, we like we argued about it for a little while, like in a funny way. Um, but yeah, I think that we don't realize that also our children have appreciation languages too. So, um, you know, I talk in that chapter about um, the five love languages or the five appreciation languages. And so learning what your child, how they feel love, and then your spouse, and then also teaching your child about the five appreciation languages is actually an incredible conversation. And they're very able to have that conversation with you. Um, so I highly encourage um, everyone to ask their child uh, about the five appreciation languages and teach them about it. And then maybe have a Saturday where you try different things and ask them what their favorite thing was, you know? I love it. Absolutely love That's it. That's great. Yeah, so in uh, Vanessa's book titled Captivate, um, she gives tons of tips when it comes from um, all over the map, from you know interactions from the first five minutes, first five hours to the first five days. Uh, her, uh, the science of people, the lab, they've broken things down, literally down to a science, and the information that is uh, revealed in the book is absolutely fascinating. If you hear the concepts that she's just delivering here in this short time that we have her, I, my mind, you know, you know what they call it, like, I'm just, my mind's getting blown every sure. time just thinking like, wow, and it's like leading to a bunch of other thoughts. That explosive thought process is, you know, delivered um, in her book, 
captivate. Um, so like I said, the, the, the description, I want to kind of go over the description really quick if um, you're interested. Um, again, it's titled Captivate, Use Science to Succeed with People. And the question is uh, presented, do you wish you could decode people? Do you want a formula for charisma? Do you know what exactly, what to say to your boss, your date, or your networking partner? You need to know how people work. As a human behavior investigator, Vanessa Van Edwards studies the hidden forces that drive our behavior patterns in her lab, and she's cracked the code. In Captivate, she shares a wealth of valuable shortcuts, systems, and behavior hacks for taking charge of their interactions at work, at home, and in any social situation. These aren't people skills you learned in school. This is the first comprehensive, science-backed, real-life manual on human behavior and a completely new approach to building connections. Um, so I know we only have you for a limited time, but for anyone, uh, for anyone out there who's listening, can you just briefly explain what a human behavior investigator actually does? Yeah. So we run original research experiments in real life. So I try to figure out how can we make shortcuts for ourselves and interactions and conversation with charisma and our relationships to work smarter, not harder when it comes to relationships. I love it. Awesome. So, um, all right. So, perfect. So, your book is now available. Where can people get the book? Yeah, it's available wherever books are sold. Um, obviously, on Amazon. I we're, we last time I checked, we hit the um, Wall Street Journal bestseller list, so we should be in your local bookstores, hopefully. Um, and uh, we're even, I think, in a couple of airports. So, but Amazon is probably your safest bet. Nice, <laughs> awesome, nice. and congratulations. That's awesome. Thanks. Um, and what's the best way people can connect uh, and contact you? Yeah, so my lab is scienceofpeople.com, and I love when people come and play, so uh, feel free to come and poke <laughs> around. We have articles, you can take some body language tests, you can test out your reading of micro-expressions and all kinds of good stuff, so uh, sciencepeople.com. Yeah, and the website is packed with free tools to increase your social influence. Um, it is, you know, exactly as she said, there's a lie detection test, and, yeah. you know, it's, it's fascinating stuff. We can go on for hours, but... Um, her new book, Captivate, as you heard, is available wherever books are sold. Um, and with that being said, we like to wrap up each episode uh, with quotes. And we're going to give you guys quotes from Vanessa Van Edwards herself. And the first one is, presence and personality matters just as much as ideas. And the second one is, the key to being a successful leader is meeting the needs of your subordinates, whether that's giving them encouragement or the independence to work alone. Uh, so there you have it, folks. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us. It was much, an Vanessa. absolute pleasure. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You guys are great. All right. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Captivate. In this episode, we have special guest Vanessa Van Edwards. In this episode, we talk about her book, Captivate, and how she uses science to succeed with people. We get into various topics, including body language, parenting, enthusiasm, and emotional intelligence. Vanessa shares with us hacks for taking charge of interactions at work, at home, and in any social situation. Lastly, we wrap up the episode with quotes from the author herself, Vanessa Van Edwards. Thanks again for joining us. Guys, don't forget to visit the website, jimmyleevelez.com. Follow the blog. If you have any inquiries or questions you would like for us to answer on a future episode, uh, just email us at info at jimmyleevelez.com. And on behalf of myself and the rest of the crew, we wish you massive success. And until next time, adios. The Rotated Views podcast was produced for self-development purposes. Thank you for the love and support. We truly do hope you enjoyed the views.